talk about top one or two tools that you couldn't live without to do what you do. Something you use to actually deliver what you do. Something you think is essential to getting your job done nowadays, which might be a little interesting now that you're in a portfolio stage of life. Notion has been pretty great, actually. I don't feel like I take full, full advantage of it, but you know, it, I used Evernote for a long time and it was fine. It was okay. But no, Notion's really nice to be able to kind of put more of those interesting kind of database or multimedia things in, in a way that Evernote never was great for. Um, so that's become kind of my internal like knowledge base. If I'm working on the book, if I'm working on teaching or working on a consulting project, I'm able to have all of those things documented in the same place, which makes a big difference. And the second one is Webflow. Heroes are an inspiring group of people. Every one of them from the larger than life comic book heroes you see on the big silver screen, the everyday heroes that let us live the privileged lives we do. Every hero has a story to tell. From the doctor saving lives at your local hospital, the war veteran down the street who risked his life for our freedom, to the police officers and the firefighters who risk their safety to ensure ours. Every hero is special and every story worth telling. But there is one class of heroes that I think is often ignored. The entrepreneur, the creator, the producer, the ones who look at the problems in this world and think to themselves, you know what? I can fix that. I can help people. I can make a difference. Then they go out and do exactly that by creating a new product or introducing a new service. Some go on to change the world. Others make a world of difference to their customers. Welcome to The Hero Show. Join us as we pull back the masks on the world's finest heropreneurs and learn the secrets to their powers, their success, and their influence. So you can use those secrets to attract more sales, make more money, and experience more freedom in your business. I'm your host, Richard Matthews, and we are on in three, two, one. Hello and welcome back to The Hero Show. My name is Richard Matthews, and today I have live on the line with me, Ben Gutman. Ben, are you there? Hi, Richard. How are you? Thanks for having me. Awesome. Glad to have you here. I know we were uh, talking a little bit ahead of time. You're calling in from New York. Is that right? I am here in the great city of New York and the greatest part. I'm excited to, to talk to you while you're on the road. Yeah, absolutely. For uh, those of you who are following around on my wife and I's travels and our families, we are still in Florida because November's not here yet. We're going to be here till November. And I know in, I was seeing some pictures some from friends of mine in New York. You guys just got like flooded out there, didn't you? We got pretty walloped. <laughs> it was pretty bad. Uh, I'm in uh, a neighborhood here that has a little bit higher elevation, so it wasn't too bad. But what was interesting about this was there's a number of neighborhoods in the city that have that, you know, the word heights in them or something like that or slope. <laughs> and so Park Slope flooded because it was lower elevation and like something like Jackson Heights or Brooklyn Heights didn't flood because it's higher up. And it, it just goes to show that these names weren't just pulled out of thin air. It's something that does relate to the actual, relate to the actual topography. Actual That's fun. Yeah, I know. My, we got yeah. to go to uh, New York a couple of years ago. It was right after uh, COVID and um, we didn't get to go into anything because it was all still closed down. So like on our trip around the country, we got to walk through Central Park and take the hike of horses around. Uh, but we couldn't go into the zoo because the zoo was still closed. And we got to see like the Empire State Building, but we couldn't go in because it was closed. And we got to see the Chrysler Building, but we couldn't go in because it was closed. But so we got to see like the outside of New York. <laughs> <laughs> So. Well, I do tell people when they come here, the best thing you can do is just walk around because yeah. that is what is different about New York than everywhere else in the country and most of the places in the world is that you could stand in the middle of it and you can walk an hour in any direction and it's still a city. Yeah. You know, there's still shops my, and bars and restaurants and everything else. My most surprising part about New York was two things. One was everyone in the rest of the country is lying through their teeth about having New York style pizza. No. Like New York pizza is its own breed. I don't even think you should call it pizza. It's like a heavenly circle food. I don't know. It's wonderful. And then the other one was you have this like cultural perception that New Yorkers are mean. 
or gruff or whatever. And like, we had exactly the opposite experience. Everyone we ran into in New York was just like the friendliest, nicest people that we've met anywhere in the country. And like, we were having a hard time finding a place to park downtown. And some guy just like waved us down. He was like, Hey, if you're trying to get to Central Park this time of day, you need to go three streets over here, two streets down this way and park there. You'll have a spot on the left for you. And I was like, man, they found a place for us to park. And we went to the park with a couple of guys that like ran some big companies or whatever. And we spent the whole afternoon with our kids playing together at the park and they invited us over for dinner. And like, it was just, you know, it is not the New York that is portrayed in movies. <laughs> oh, absolutely. I, I actually put this in the book, which is the difference between being kind and being nice. And so being kind is what you really want to go for. Being kind is the, you care about the outcomes. You care about the well-being yeah. of somebody else, of the person you're talking to. Uh, being nice is the surface level part. It's the politeness, it's the smile and yeah. you know, kind of the facade about that. And so New Yorkers, not always nice, always kind. Yeah. I actually think that- That's that a good way to example, describe that. A great piece of it. Yeah. And then I'll tell you on, on the pizza front, I, I love New York pizza, obviously. I have become more accepting over time of diverse pizza um, perspectives. I'll put it that way. <laughs> uh, I think that there's sub plenty of validity to something in you know New Haven pizza. Uh, I was just in Buffalo recently and Buffalo has their own unique style of pizza. Would I seek it out? I don't know. I'd go out of my way for that, but it, it's interesting to try it. My contention is that they're everywhere in the country, they sell things that they call New York style pizza. And I'm like, that's a lie. That's what it is. It's oh, just yeah. a straight lie. <laughs> I'm like, no, not New York style. You made a flat round pizza that looks like it could have come from New York, but it is not on the same playing field. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Uh, and I think that, you know, when people come and they visit and I'll talk about, you know, they say, well, where's the best pizza? Where's the best bagel? There are like the best pizza, quote unquote, the best pizza places. And I, I can riff on this for the next hour instead of talking about anything else about, you know, this place in Brooklyn, this, that place in Brooklyn. And there are some good slice shops now that have become like a thing. But for the most part, when you talk about those two iconic New York foods, it's the same answer that like people in Philly will give you about their cheesesteaks, which is hey, it's just kind of like the neighborhood place that you like a lot. Like every neighborhood has a spot that's like, this is the better one. This is the not They're so all good pretty one. Good. There's not like the platonic ideal of a slice somewhere or a bagel somewhere. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So what I want to do before we get too far into the interview is go through your introduction real quick. So if you see me looking off over here, I've got your, your intro over here. So Ben Gutman is a marketing and communications expert and author of Simply Put, Why Clear Messages Win and How to Design Them. I think you got a picture of that cover, right? You could show us what it looks like. There you go, oh. coming out shortly. And he's an experienced marketing executive and educator on a mission to get leaders to more effectively connect by simplifying their message. Ben is former co-founder and managing partner at Digital Native Groups, an award-winning agency that um, worked with NFL, I Love New York, Comcast, NBC Universal, Hatchet uh, Book Group, The Nature Conservancy, and many other major clients. Currently, Ben teaches digital marketing at Baruch College in New York City and consults with a range of thought leaders, venture-backed startups, and other brands. So you got a quite a storied history there. History there. What I want to <laughs> have you start with is what are you known for now, right? The what's your business like? Who do you serve? What do you do for them? Yeah, I mean, I appreciate the the bio. It, it gives a good rundown of stuff. So I ran that marketing agency for ten years. Uh, I did that right out of school. It was originally just me and a couple of buddies setting up shop in an old professor's basement. We slapped our logo on the wall and, you know, worked at the local ice cream shop and camera shop and eventually punched our way up to having an office here and having a whole team and working with all these great brands. And that was a great ride. Sold that business about a year ago, a year and a half ago. And today I've been, you know, enjoying what 
somebody once uh, described as a portfolio life, which is kind of having several different things you're doing at once, right? So I have the book, which is really exciting. That comes out October 10th. I'm talking to you on October 4th. So I'm like right in the thick of that, which is really fun. And that's, I mean, anybody who's ever written a book knows that's kind of a long-term yeah. project that takes you about a year or so from hiring an agent and book proposal to getting the final thing in your hands. So that's the big project that I've been working on recently. And I do a number of kind of speaking and training things based off of that, that are, are beginning to ramp up. I also do some independent consulting and advising as a fractional CMO. I've been doing that for a few clients over the past year. And I continue to work in kind of some of the tourism stuff that I've been, that we used to specialize in our agency. And then I teach, this is the best thing. I love it so much. I teach marketing at Baruch College here in New York City, which is my alma mater. It's part of the City University of New York. It's the best engine for social and economic mobility in the country. And it's an excellent school. And I love teaching there. Anybody who I ever meet that thinks that they want to go teach somewhere, I will hammer it into their head that they should go do it. Go teach at Baruch College. Yeah, that's really cool. And I know mm -hmm. from just from like listening to a few talk, you're like portfolio life. It's one of my future goals. I always look at people like, you know, famous people like Elon Musk. I'm like, listen, I know he's not working day to day in like eight different companies, right? He's got like a portfolio of companies and they're doing their thing. That's sort of like where you're like, okay, you sell one company. Now you've got a portfolio of things that are happening, which is, I don't know, seems like a good goal for an entrepreneur to get to that point where you've got your hands in a few different things and helping companies grow with just some strategy here and there. It's an interesting kind of phase to go through, right? So I ran my last company for 10 years and doing anything for 10 years is a long time. Yeah. Right? It doesn't matter what it is, if it's having a job, if it's being a school, if it's just creating a job, making your own business, 10 years is a long time. It's a big chapter of your life. And so I've been enjoying for the past year or two instead of kind of doing that one big thing, diversifying and doing a few smaller things. And I look forward to that for the next year or so also. And at some point, things will shift. The pendulum in life will go the other way and say, hey, you know what, maybe there's another big thing I want to do, right? But I think as the economy changes and as people's lives, you know, mature and, and we go through different phases of them, it's interesting to have these periods where you kind of step out of the really you know, really focused part and look more widely at things. Yeah, I have two thoughts on that. One of them is this, we tend to entrepreneurs particularly really look at the whole work-life balance as like, hey, we're trying, we've started a business, we could have work-life balance, right? And they have that legal scale thing in their head. And I always think that's a, a dumb metaphor uh, because the reality <laughs> is it's far closer to, if you're gonna have a metaphor for it, a rubber band for like some periods of time, you're really stretching that rubber band. Uh, and if you want forward momentum, you have to let go, right? And so to move forward, so you have, and you have to go back and forth between those periods of stretched and, re and relaxed. And that's both on like your micro basis on a daily basis where you're, you're going from working to relaxing to your more medium like format, like on a, you know, you should take a couple of weeks off here and there. And then on like, you're talking large scale, like, Hey, you got 10 years of your life. You dedicate to something. Maybe now it's time to relax a little bit <laughs> and gear up for whatever the next uh, stretch period is in your life. Oh, I, I, that's exactly what it is, is that you can't do like in marketing where I spent all my time, we used to always say marketing is about connecting, you know, culture to business a lot of times. And you can't do that unless you have the time to experience the culture, right? Unless you have time to be a user of the world and not just somebody who is trying to sell things into it all the time. And I think that applies broadly to anybody in an entrepreneurial venture is that you need to look at things you know, look at your own kind of health and well-being, obviously, look at your financial well-being and also just be able to kind of like step back from the, you know, looking so deeply at the trees and see the forest, right? You want to be able to, 
you know, have a whole understanding of who you are and who the world and what the world is and how you want to fit into it in the next chapter. It's kind of just taking a break, taking a yeah. beat. And it's not that I'm taking a break, right? I'm working all the time. I'm enjoying all these different things. But I think that, and now I'm a year or so later after kind of getting out of the day-to-day -day of the agency, I am more rejuvenated and I am more, you know, interested in a few projects that I have in the early stages that I wouldn't have had the same passion for energy for capacity for right after we sold the yeah. agency. If I did that right away, it would have been a different experience as it would have as getting this perspective over the past year has been. Yeah. And like, just like to further that, like, it's particularly in marketing, right? Not, you know, because we're a marketing agency as well, different sort of world than, than what you, you were doing. But if you're selling things into the marketplace, as you said, you, you have to experience life. Like if, you know, good sex, good food, good friends, good experiences, good, like, if you're not actually like living life, how are you going to create products that other people actually want that are busy living life? <laughs> so, you know, you're Oh yeah. And you also, you, then you end up with, if you're in like the tech universe or something like that, and you're so deep into that and you end up with creating things that are like unethical, right? <laughs> you end up creating things that people don't want things that are like, you know, you create Skynet, right? You yeah. create the bad things. Uh, if you're not able to have the perspective of, uh, okay, well, this is how a normal person acts. This is what a normal person wants. And the spectrum of normal is, is absolutely gigantic, right? But it, it's important for us to step out of our own bubbles a lot of times and to understand, you know, who our audience is. And that's what I talk about in the book actually a lot too, is, but is that I have a little chapter called the enlightened idiot. Welcoming the enlightened idiot is the idiot means anybody who's the common man, right? That's where the word comes from. And it's, so it's not a derisive take. And the idea is the enlightened idiot can give us perspective on our messages, can give us pictures on our ideas that we can't get ourselves because we're so kind of in our own head a lot of times. Yeah. Yeah. I like that. So what I want to do is I'm going to start diving into your story a little bit and uh, talk about your origin story, right? So every good comic book hero has an origin story. And that's the, the thing that made them into the hero they are today. I mean, we don't hear that story. Were you born a hero? Were you bit by a radioactive spider that made you want to start a marketing company? Or do you start in a job and eventually move to become an entrepreneur? Basically, how did you get to this point? Oh, man, who knows? <laughs> so the I ran this agency, as I mentioned before, right out. Of, I started right out of school with a couple of buddies. And it was largely because I didn't want to go get a job. And I'm sure a lot of... Uh, folks in our shoes, a lot of people who are listening will uh, appreciate that is that, you know, we aren't necessarily always built for having a job or at least having a normal job Yeah. because, you know, either our personalities or our talents or our experience, or whatever it is, make it are constitutionally un unable to kind of do that. So I had to go make one. And it just so happened that I was in this professor's class who ran a marketing agency. He basically at some point pulled me aside and said, hey, I know we want to start. Yeah. I know we, I know you want to start something. We need some help with digital. Maybe we can figure something out. Yeah. And we, you know, again, we, I took my beat up 1994 Honda Accord and I drove it up to his office just outside of the city. And we, you know, over the course of a year, again, we slapped a logo on the wall and worked off of folding tables and, you know, there was an inflatable couch on the side of the room and we ran our business there and we did some work with them. They worked with like fortune 500 clients. So we didn't really actually have that much overlap with them because we were a bunch of knuckleheaded 22 year olds, but we started to cut our teeth. We on the local ice cream shop, I mentioned the camera shop, this little real estate guy and bit by bit, it 
became something that we could tell the story of ourselves a little bit bigger, a little bit bigger, a little bit bigger. And eventually you start getting this project, which is the medium budget. And then you punch up to the bigger budget. Then you work with this brand and you work with that brand and you take it all together. And, you know, it start that's forward momentum starts to pile on each other. And, you know, 10 years later, we have an office and we have a team and we have, we're profitable. Everything's doing great. And then that's, you know, that's when I pick up the story, the other part of it, which is that we decide to sell the business. Um, so it, it was a, a really fun ride for me. Also, there's kind of an immense amount of like privilege that I have in terms of I, nobody in my family like had a job, like everybody made a job, it, like going back several yeah. generations. My father is an attorney who has his own small private practice. My grandfather before him came over during the, after the war and opened up a couple delis, diners here in New York city. His father in Czechoslovakia had a grocery store, you know, before that was a farmer, you know, you've gone back. And on my mother's side, it was the same thing. You know, she's a social worker before that her father was a psychiatrist and before that, you know, it, it, it keeps on going. And none of that was like my dad ran of, you know, the biggest marketing agents in the world. That's not that level of, you know, family assistance, but it is the subtle psychological support that you get when you go home for Thanksgiving. And nobody is asking you, hey, so when are you going to stop that silly thing and go get a job, right? People understand what it's like to make something. And they understand yeah. what it's like to, you know, have uneven pay periods and all these other things. And that level of kind of quiet support is something that I am always very grateful for. Yeah, that's wonderful. I know my family is not entrepreneurial. And for the first, you know, because I started young, I started my first business at like 13 and convinced my dad to give me a loan to like, go and buy candy bars wholesale at the local big box store and sell oh, wow. on campus. And I made like 1500 bucks before I got a, I had my first government shutdown because they told me I couldn't have a business without a business license at 13. Um, but like all the way back to then to, you know, I ran a photography business through college, paid my way through that and then started my first marketing agency outside of um, after college. And you know, my dad and my mom, you know, all of that, those growing up years, they're like, why are you doing this? Why don't you just like get a job? And like, it'd be so much easier if you got a job. And I'm like, it, it probably would have been for a long time because to build mm -hmm. something successful takes a long time. And it wasn't until just a couple of years ago where my family is, they're still like, we don't quite understand what you do, <laughs> but we're proud of you for whatever it is that you do, whatever the weird stuff is you have accomplished. Oh, oh yeah. I mean, the, the first couple of years, all my friends that went and got jobs, they made way more money than we did, right? And then eventually it starts to even out. And then eventually you make more money because, you know, that's just the nature of, of building a business. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, once, once you start pulling in your own income, that does tend to quiet those voices of, ah, just get a job. And then eventually they, they turn around saying, I always believed in you. I, I always knew it. Yeah, I always <laughs> I, knew it. I always knew you'd be, I always knew you'd be yeah. successful. Yeah. And it's true. Like my parents, they very, they very literally always believed in me. They're like, listen, I don't understand what you're doing, but if you put your mind to it, you can accomplish it. So it was never a negative thing. It was just a we're pretty sure you're crazy. <laughs> and, you know, to the outside world, I guess you probably are because it's not, you know, there, there's a certain level of risk tolerance that comes with being an entrepreneur that is just not normal. And, you mm. know, I used to, when I was a younger entrepreneur, think that anyone could be an entrepreneur. And I realized it's more along the lines of like, you know, the central message of Ratatouille. Not, you know, it's not that any, everyone can be a chef. It's that a good chef can come from anywhere. <laughs> Right. Same kind of thing, right? Not everyone can be an entrepreneur, but a good chef can, or a good entrepreneur can come from anywhere. And that's really where I've ended up on that journey and realized like now I, 
it's not that I would wish entrepreneurship on anyone, but it's for the right people. It's really good and it's really mm -hmm. powerful and you can change the world and or change your own part of it anyways. The Hero Show will be right back. Hey there, fellow podcaster. Having a weekly audio and video show on all the major online networks that builds your brand, creates fame and drives sales for your business doesn't have to be hard. I know it feels that way because you've tried managing your show internally and realize how resource intensive it can be. You felt the pain of pouring eight to 10 hours of work into just getting one hour of content published and promoted all over the place. You see the drain on your resources, but you do it anyways because you know how powerful it is. Heck, you've probably even tried some of those automated solutions and ended up with stuff that makes your brand look cheesy and cheap. That's not helping grow your business. Don't give up though. The struggle ends now. Introducing Push Button Podcasts, a done-for-you service that will help you get your show out every single week without you lifting a finger after you've pushed that stop record button. We handle everything else, uploading, editing, transcribing, writing, research, graphics, publication, and promotion, all done by real humans who know, understand, and care about your brand almost as much as you do. Empowered by our own proprietary technology, our team will let you get back to doing what you love while we handle the rest. Check us out at pushbuttonpodcast.com forward slash hero for 10% off the lifetime of your service with us and see the power of having an audio and video podcast growing and driving micro-celebrity status and business in your niche without you having to lift more than a finger to push that stop record button. Again, that's pushbuttonpodcast.com forward slash hero. See you there. You're listening to The Hero Show, unlocking the power of influence and success. And anyways... I've always liked that. And now my biggest struggle now, and you probably run into this because you teach, right? Is like, how do you tell people like, you know, are, is entrepreneurship right for you? <laughs> oh, I have that opportunity every single semester. Yeah. Right? So my class is made up of uh, almost exclusively seniors and almost exclusively marketing students. And depending on the semester, like this semester, I have a smaller class, but some semesters I have 50 or 70 students. And I'm, I will... Out of that group, I will, I, cause I teach on Monday nights. The weird thing about that is a number of them, that will be the last class they ever take yeah. in their entire lives. They've been taking classes since they were in kindergarten and they are getting there and it's the last class before they leave a classroom for their entire life. Some will go to grad school, some will go to, you know, trades, you know, get certificates and whatever. But for a large percentage of them, you know, undergrad is it for me so far, it's been the case. And what it's this very weird responsibility to say, okay, this is the moment where you, once I say class dismissed, you're out of here, you're fine, you're done. And I always tell them this analogy, which is the escalator is up until this moment in their life, every, you've been basically on an escalator. Everybody has their own unique challenges. And a lot of my students have incredible biographies, but to, to simplify it, you're basically going to go from first grade to second grade to third grade, unless something really bad happens. You fall off the escalator, you jump off the escalator. You're going to be going up each grade. You're going to be going from first semester to second semester, from homecoming to midterms to finals. And, and there's this cadence to life that happens up until you get to this moment. And at this moment, the escalator stops and you're getting off. And it's entirely up to you. You have to take the step. You no more engine pushing you about what you're going to do in that moment. And 
you know, it's daunting because yeah. you've never experienced that before. It's always been that there's some sort of quiet momentum pushing behind you. And so that means you can go get a job. That means you can go make a job. It means you got to find out what you're, what the hell you want to do with your life, who you want to spend your life with, where you want to spend your life. All these are real questions that never really came up before for somebody. And I tell people at this moment, just making the soft sales pitch, not so soft sales pitch for entrepreneurship, which is you will never have less burden than you have now. You will never have fewer bills. You will never have uh, less responsibility in terms of having a spouse or kids or pets or whatever you got to do on average again. But so this is the time to go take a risk, go do something weird, you know, go start that business, go, you know, do this, start a nonprofit, go do this, you know, weird kind of self-discovery, you know, thing, whatever you want to do, go do it. Because if you start a business and you fail, then what's the worst that happens? Somebody, you're in the same position as everybody else in a year from now when they look at your resume and they say you're 23 instead of 22 when you, when you graduate. And, you, and they look at your resume and say, oh, this guy actually tried something. And he started an agency, it didn't work. He started a software company, it didn't work, whatever it was. And that's the worst case scenario. The best case scenario is, hey, it worked and it sticks and you go and you can do something interesting of your life that makes you more fulfilled. And so I always say that it only gets harder in life. As you get older, you're going to have more, you're going to have kids, you're going to have a spouse, you're going to have pets, you're going to have a mortgage, your back's going to hurt. All these things are going to be the case. Try something as soon as you can and at least let, let the kind of market rule it out instead of yourself. That's a fantastic message. And re the, it resonates with the whole easy part, too, because I remember like my last year of college, you know, I shared a house with like five other guys and it was like crooked and there were like cockroaches in it. And like I, we shared a bed, we shared bedrooms kind of thing. Like and it was just it was so easy because I had no wife, I had no kids, I had no pets. I had like the only thing I had to take care of was the cockroaches and I didn't have to keep them alive. I was trying to kill them. There was, you know, there's just no responsibility. So getting, you know, I started my marketing company right out of that, you know, that's it. Your responsibility is just to yourself, right? And mm -hmm. your that responsibility to just to try things and to learn and to fail and to know that you don't have this whole life to support yet. So failure is not a big thing. Not the same as, you know, like now where I've got a wife and four kids and a family and pets and like a whole, you know, in my case, you know, 13 other families whose livelihood is based on whether or not we make payroll this week. But you know what you said? You said the responsibility to yourself. And I, I don't know if that was the intentional phrasing or if that was, you know, maybe a slip of the tongue, which is, but I like that, which was it's not so much that you're the only person you're responsible for, which is true, but it, you have a responsibility to yourself to be able to try those type, those different things that you want to do. Because now I'm at the point, you know, I don't know how many years, I guess it's been since I graduated, that I see a lot of my peers that are saying, hey, I, I did the thing that was the seeming escalator, that was the go when I got a job at some, you know, insurance company or whatever it is. And nothing's wrong with doing that. But then they look and they're like, they go, is this what it was? Am I supposed to just keep doing this? And so you have a way and COVID in the last couple of years has definitely been a kick in the butt for a lot of people to look around and say, am I, is this actually what I want to keep doing? Yeah. And, the, you know, if, you owe it to yourself to answer some of those questions earlier on instead of kind of taking the easy route. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, it, it, it is intentional. The phrasing is a responsibility to yourself. And that's where the way I look at it, the way I teach my kids too, it's like, hey, your first responsibility when you leave here is to yourself like you have that responsibility to see what you're capable of and realize that it's probably a lot more than you think Anyways, i love that yeah 
So I want to shift gears a little bit and talk about your superpowers, right? So every iconic hero has their superpowers, whether that's a fancy flying suit made by their genius intellect or the ability to call down thunder from the sky, or, you know, maybe it's their super strength like Superman. But in the real world, heroes have what I call a zone of genius, which is either a skill that you were born with or skills that set of skills that you developed over the course of your life. And it's really what sets you apart. It allows you to help your people slay their villains, come out on top of their own journeys. And the way I like to frame it is if you look at all the skills you develop over the course of your career, you probably have a common thread that ties all of those skills together. With that framing, what do you think your superpower is in business? Clarity. The, the book, this is part of the reason why I wrote this book, right? The book is, is about clear messages and how to design them, why they're important, uh, and, and you know, how we can do, how we can dissect them, how we can use some science back tools to put them into use for ourselves. And, but the reason I ended up writing it was because so many folks, and I would see this as in my career as a professional, as an educator, as a consumer of the world, that so many people have such a hard time articulating what it is they want to say and yeah. what, why it's important and what's their story, what's their product, what's their cause. All these things get stuck and like it might make sense to them and sometimes it actually doesn't make sense to them, but they want to get it, they want to get it out in the world. And it's the most important thing we do, right? Communication is the number one cause for divorce, right? It's number one if bad communication. Bad communication is number one cause for airline accidents, number one cause of healthcare accidents. And so it's important. It's important that we communicate properly. Not this is before you even mentioned the billions of dollars that we spend on advertising that yeah. doesn't work because it's not connecting. And so I wrote this book about clarity because I was curious about a question which kind of drives everything, which is why do some messages work and others don't? And it turns out that the answer is simple. And, you know, if that's enough, then don't buy the book. But if you're interested in more of the answer, I wrote 208 pages about it, which seems like I didn't take my own advice. But I, the thing about it is that it, once you peel off the lid, it becomes very deep of a topic and you can go and you can look at the five elements we have and all these different things. Yeah. I was going to say, I, I, I love that as a superpower because it's the one thing that I constantly preach to my kids. Uh, my oldest one is 14. He's actually, his birthday is on the day your book is releasing on October 10th, which is fun. And, oh, happy birthday. Yeah, yeah. So birth of your book, birth of my son works out. The, but I tell him constantly, like of all the things, and I'm like, there's a lot of things you can get really good at, right? And he does some cool stuff, right? He spends fire at 13, which is cool. Like professionally, he gets paid to do it because he's so good at it. And he does several other things that are, he's all really yeah. good at. But I'm like, listen, the most leverageable skill you can develop in any situation is clarity of communication. Right. And as like hundred percent, and so many people can't do it. If your son can do it at 14, he's ahead of half the people that I've met that are in the C-suite that are two or three or four times his age. That's yeah. what, it's so rare. And because of that, it stands out a lot of times. Yeah. I also think the, another thing, this personally for me, that has been a uh, kind of a complimentary version of that is how you extend that visually. So my functional background is in design. Like I've been a practicing designer for, for years in, when I ran my agency, even I was still getting the trenches and, and do some design. And that is like this weird kind of superpower that I do recommend anybody who has an inkling of it to cultivate because you can go a long way with just having something that is nicely designed you know, having yeah. a good website that's clean, a good proposal that's clean, you know, and this is like the dirty secret, which is sometimes you can kind of paper over the substance not being as good as you want it to be if the design can make up for that 
Yeah. And we've done that where we've had like proposals where, oh man, we might not have the qualifications for this project. Other people have bigger portfolios and they've worked with bigger clients and we're just kind of this ragtag group of guys. But you know what? We're going to make a proposal that's going to razzle dazzle them and they're going to, they're going to consider us at least. Yeah. And so I would say if anybody is remotely has some sort of aptitude towards design to, to nourish that as much as you can. Yeah, I agree with that. I'm not a designer by trade, but I have cultivated as much as I can. So like we, you know, I designed the first draft of our website for agency and it looks good. Like you wouldn't be sad if you looked at it and be like, oh, someone was good at this. I now have professional designers on my team and they're working on redrafts for that. And like watching someone who's actually got like talent for it, as opposed to just trained aptitude is there's a world's part, but still like you can get a long ways just by learning the aptitude. Oh yeah. And you mentioned hiring the designers too. Is That's the other thing I advocate for a lot of times is if you're building out a startup, you're building out of your team, if you don't have it yourself, hire it as early as you can, because they will pay back it. They will pay back in spades. Yeah. And it is, I've also noticed in, because of what we do, we work on podcast agencies, a lot of video and um, a lot of audio content, a lot of the, uh, the, you know, the visuals that go along with it. The thing that gets the most compliments and the most like responses back from clients is always the design work. It doesn't matter how hard any of the other stuff is or how much work goes into it. It doesn't matter. The thing that, that you get the compliments from is the design work. And so having a good designer pays spades, even if it's just referrals, because they're like, oh, man, design work is great, which means everything must be great. <laughs> I, I think actually you just said another gem on the head there, which is it, it does often act as a signaling mechanism for the quality of everything else. Yeah. And, and in both, you know, in both perception and reality, a lot of if, if somebody puts the effort in to make sure that the internal memo and I used to harp about this all the time, my agency, that the internal memo looks good. If you care about that, then you're going to care a lot about everything else. Yeah. I call those unconscious trust signals, the kind of yeah. things that like the market is going to see and perceive. And they might not be able to tell you why they trust your company more than another, right? Like someone who knows design and knows what's going on can point to like, oh, you know, everything that Apple has ever put out uses exactly the same font in exactly the same ways, right? Like they follow consistent design language every single time. So every time you see something from them, you automatically recognize it, right? It's unconscious press signals. Same kind of thing happens, right? The quality of your videos, the quality of your audio on your podcast, the quality of your design work that comes out, the consistency of all your email signatures from everyone on your team, right? Those kind of things... You might be able to, you know, the person who's going to buy from you is not going to be able to write down a list of here's the reasons why I do or don't trust you, but they'll make snap decisions. Mm -hmm. And that's where those unconscious trust signals come in. A lot of it has to do with intelligently used design. I love that. I love that. I'm going to be, I've used that, that model, but I'm, I'm going to steal some of those examples there. I think this is really great. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Teach them in, in class. <laughs> the more people who know, the better. So I would talk about flip side, right? So if your superpower is that clarity of message, the flip side of every superpower is, of course, the fatal flaw, right? So just like Superman has his kryptonite or Wonder Woman can't remove her bracelets of victory without going mad, you probably have a flaw, something that's held you back in your business, something you struggled with. For me, it was perfectionism, right? And I always would like keep wanting to make things better and, and like to the point of not shipping. And if you don't ship anything, you've not actually done anything. You've not provided anyone any value. And so I had to come up with some ways to get over that. And for me, it was like, I could take something to 80% and then I have to give it to someone else to actually like finish and fit, hit publish because I'll never hit publish. I could always make it a little bit better. So I'd build systems around myself that you know take that into account. So I think, but more important for this conversation than what the flaw is, how have you worked to overcome it so that you know our listeners might learn a little bit from your experience? So for me, I mean, the perfectionism is, I feel like always a good one. But for me, I think it is... 
something about kind of this like eagerness or excitement, or it might be labeled by people who aren't as, you know, friendly as like being a loud mouth or being, you know, just like too much. I have sometimes found myself in situations where I've worked with folks who are just like a different wavelength, right? They want to be maybe slower on something, more methodical. They want to be subtler in the way they're communicating or the way that like us as a group or their client, whatever it is, maybe more conservative about some of these different tactics. And I have found when I've in these situations occasionally that my default is to often kind of you know, kind of, you know, first of all, there's some sort of kind of, you know, conflict at the beginning because of that. But then I, my default is to say, okay, well, you know, let me take a step back. Let me defer to them to be more kind of, you know, again, subtler, slower, conservative, whatever it's going to be to tone things down, to keep the peace. But then I have found that ends up being uh, the worst move. I don't think that it is good for me personally to kind of, you know, not step be out able of your- to... Yes bring my, yeah, to step my full, you know, to bring myself out of my, you know, to use my powers, right? Like to, to go back to the hero example, right? The powers of saying, hey, I have this energy, I have this passion, I have this eagerness to do something. If I have to just sit on my hands and bite my tongue because somebody else in the meeting is not happy about, you know, the way I, which I do that, and because they want to do something else, I realize so, look, I want to make sure that I'm not being a total jerk about it, but also like, it's not so much my problem. It's their problem. Right. If you watch the West wing, have you ever seen the West wing? I've seen a few episodes of it, but I've not watched it religiously or anything. So I love that show. I guess I should probably rewatch it at some point, but they have, there's a bit in there where the president is on like his reelection campaign and he's having a hard time because of this exact thing. The pollsters are telling him to do one thing. The, you know, advisors telling him to kind of, you know, take this angle or this ad angle. And eventually they say, well, let Bartlett be Bartlett. And that's the president's name is Jed Bartlett. Let Bartlett be Bartlett. Like, let him loose. Let him, like, his talent and ability and energy and style uh, are what got him to that position. And by somehow hemming him in doing these other kind of focus group tested things or whatever, you're just, you're taking away the magic from it. I'm not saying, listen, I'm not the president, nor am I likely going to be. But I, I have found that it's better for me often to change the situation to say, okay, let me go to a place where that energy is better used yeah. as better appreciated than it is to kind of try to be something that I'm not in there. Yeah. It's just owning your own authenticity, owning who you are and just showing up um, authentically. Mm-hmm. And like, I know that's, a, it's kind of a cliche thing to say to be, you know, it would be authentic, but like it, it actually matters like in the real world to show up as who you are mm-hmm. and to own your superpowers and to just be like, Hey, listen, this is what I'm really good at. And that's one of the things that like I've noticed as like the CEO of my company is that I really have to focus on like, Hey, these are things that I'm not good at or that I don't like. Mm-hmm. And I have to get those off to other people. And it's like, what do I really like doing that I show up really well at? And for me, it's speaking, it's teaching, it's podcasts. Like I can do those all day, every day and enjoy doing them. And they don't drain me. They energize me and those kind of things. So the more I do that, the better our companies does. And, but like the more I do project management, like the worse we do, because <laughs> that is just not my oh, thing. I think that's a great, I love, yeah. It's like, if I'm like, I'm not going to help the person who's really good at the bookkeeping on their stuff. Like, I'm not going to be an added value to that, but also then yeah, they still let me go out and do the, be the loud mouth somewhere and, and do my thing. It is about kind of finding the place that works for you 
and again, it's, it's, you have to have some humility in it, which is you understand that you're not going to always be the best at everything, but I'm going to be the guy that's going to want to send that follow-up email. I'm going to be the way I want to, you know, answer, like nobody else knows. It's a conference meeting of everybody else. I'm going to be the guy that's going to raise my hand and, you know, say something. And I know when my wife and I started dating, that was a big piece of it was we didn't play the like text messaging game where you're like waiting for two days to respond to something. Both of us really appreciated that, you know, you text them, you're going to get the response. And that's, I think, emblematic of the way in which I, I try to carry myself in other venues. Yeah. I'm the same way with my wife. We actually got married because of that exact reason, because we were text buddies for like five <laughs> years. And then at some point we were just like, we'd be good together. So we got married and, you know, 15 years later, here we are. <laughs> so that's awesome. Yeah, that's fun. So I want to talk a little about your common enemy. All right, so every superhero has an arch nemesis, and it's a thing that you constantly have to fight against in your world. In the world of business, it takes a lot of forms, but I want to put it in the context of, you know, we, we could either go with the context of your clients when you ran the marketing agency, or maybe even your students now as you're teaching. And it's a mindset or it's a flaw that you're constantly have to fight to overcome so you can actually get them the result that they came to you for. And so if you had to, if you had to choose or had to pick, like, what would the arch nemesis be for for your world well i think that the book is a good jumping off point there which is there's a whole chapter that's the crime of complicated the <laughs> yeah. the opposite of simple is complicated I, I define it as simple is you know over here on this end of the spectrum complex is on the other end of the spectrum simple and complex are opposites complicated is when something is unnecessarily complex i mean it could be simple but is complicated yeah so and, it's as simple as it uh, can be right yeah, Which simple. Could mean that it's yeah, complex. Com complicated is when, yeah, <laughs> so, yeah, complex. There's lots of things that are complex, right? There's like international diplomacy is complex. Like mergers and acquisitions are complex. These things have a lot of pieces and they move around, and it's a million different things you have to consider. Something like your internal memo about PTO is not shouldn't be complex, right? Something about your like shampoo ad shouldn't be complex. So those are complicated. Those are things that are unnecessarily complex that you didn't do the work of pulling yourself back towards simplicity on. And the problem is we have this natural bias towards more, towards addition, yeah. towards when you, there's all sorts of studies I have in the book here, which are fascinating. When you look at people who use like Lego structures or building mini golf courses or looking at patterns of square, every, these researchers go through every single different type of model for a study. And they find that we have the, our first bias, our first instinct is to add instead of subtract when we're faced with a, when we're faced with a change, the question of a change. And you'll see this in your own yeah. daily life, right? You've probably come across a client at some point that they have, 18 different links in their main navigation because everybody in the company says, I want to add this, I want to add this, I want to add this. And it just keeps on accumulating. So you take the human component there and then you add the societal component, which is there's a lot of things in, in our world that reward more. If you're looking for uh, a new job, if you're looking for uh, a new bonus from the board or to get your company's name in the paper more, is the way you do that. There's yeah. not so much evidence of absence. And it's also a way that we can hide, right? More complicated language, more kind of buzzwords thrown out, more filibustering in your meeting is a way for us to make people feel like they got something, but actually not giving them anything. Simplicity requires that you're kind of out in the open. You don't have your shields of all the big words and jargon and everything else. And it ends up being 
uh, a very scary place. It takes a lot of bravery to be simple, but ultimately that's what we want. That's what's effective. Yeah. If you look in the market, if you look in psychology, that's what effective, that's what matters. So by enemies is complicated. I love that for a number of reasons. One of the things that pops into my head is one of the things my wife tells me all the time. And it's one of the reasons why I think human beings as a species are a super dominant species is because we have as a baseline, like modus operandi is it could be better, right? Life could be better, Every, whatever it could be better. And so we're constantly looking at how do we make things better? And a lot of times the way you make it better is by adding something. And, you know, mm -hmm. just because that's not always the case, right? But it's a default sort of case is that it could be better and we can add by adding something to it. You know, I could have more money. I could have more food. I could have more time. I could have more freedom, right? It's always more. And to realize that sometimes better is not more, but less. It's a striking realization. And I remember when I realized that in my business, and you hear this a lot in, in business about learning how to niche down. And a lot of people think that means like, you know, you have to pick a specific industry to work with or something. And I realized in my company, it was niching down our offers. Like, what is it that we're actually um, offering to the marketplace? And I, to this day, regularly get people tell me that like, you could do more. And I'm like, I certainly could, but I'm not going to, right? And we have one offer, it has one price point, and we do this one thing and we do it very well. And that's the only thing that we do. <laughs> and when I got my business to that point where we were only doing this one thing, we've tripled just in the last year, right? Because wow. we're not offering a lot of things. We're offering one thing. <laughs> and that goes back to like, it's, it's just, in, in that case, the, the offer is actually fairly complex. There's a lot of things that go into what we do. But it's a very simple offer. We do this one thing for our clients. And yeah, simplicity is, it's a boon for sure. There's a famous designer from the 20th century named Dieter Rams, which I don't know if you've heard of him, but heard the name. Uh, uh, you know, Braun, the company Braun, yeah. uh, he was the big designer for them. He was the inspiration for Johnny Ives and for Steve Jobs yeah. on a lot of the uh, Apple products in the past generation. And his whole thing was less, but better, you know, it's but less, but better, less, I like that. Less but better. Oh, so mm -hmm. your common enemy is complexity, and uh, that's what you're fighting against. Then the other side, of course, of your common enemy is your driving force, right? Yeah. So just like Spider-Man fights to save New York, or Batman fights to save Gotham, or Google fights to index and categorize all the world's information, what is it that you fight for now? Your mission, so to speak. Well, so it, it's complicated, not the complexity, right? So that's the kind of nuanced uh, difference. In, in that domain, it's simplicity. It is helping people get to a point in their ideas and in their messaging that is so simple that it's like sparkling, right? That it resonates, that you hear it and you go, oh man, you're okay. And you change how you act and what you buy and who you vote for and who you donate money to and all these things. An example outside of business, for instance, was a number of years ago, I went to my dentist and I was having all sorts of problems with my teeth. There were, you know, the Gutman teeth are, are not blessed with, with you know, good enamel or whatever other thing we have. So I was going, my gums were bleeding and I was a mess and I'm sitting there having the most painful periodontal thing in my life. And the dentist goes, well, you only have to floss the teeth you want to keep. And I was like, oh, that's good. I was like, that was it. And ever since then, I've lost my teeth every single night. And it's been a lot better and they're right. You only have to floss the teeth you want to keep. And that's an example of a message that is so salient and, and empathetic as a speaking of the language that yeah. I want to hear it, that it works when something like, you know, you have to floss below the gum line to prevent plaque buildup. It doesn't work, right? That doesn't connect with me in the same way that the more direct, simple one does. Yeah. So that's the state that I want 
to help people get to in that part. And then just to go full circle back to the, if you want to go ahead. And yeah, I was, I was going to say, I have my, my question that yeah. I have that pops into my head. Is simplicity something that you can formulaically get to, or is it something you just have to have enough at-bats with your message and your willingness to iterate that you can eventually get to simplicity? Or is it both? At-bats and iteration certainly help, and I think they're a very important piece. In this book, talk about kind of five principles to it, to simple messaging. So the first one is beneficial, which is, um, you know, what's in it for me? Right. Like how, so the teeth what, what does it mean? <laughs> yeah, like exactly. Uh, second one is focused. Are you trying to tell me one thing or is this like three things in a trench coat? You know, is this a Frankenstein message or is it focused? The third one is uh, salient. And so this means that it, it's coming to your attention, right? It's contrasting. It stands out. And is it different than everything else in the market? Are you able to perceive it because it's contrast? How are you different than just how do you or how are you the signal from the noise? The fourth one is empathetic, which is again, talking in the language of yeah. your receiver and it's caring about them and in terms of their outcomes, talk about the kind and nice piece. And then the last one is minimal. And so minimal is important because it's about everything you need, but only what you need. A lot of times folks will think, well, you simple, you mean shorter, right? You mean the fewest number of words, fewest number of paragraphs, fewest number of slides. And that's not really it. That might be correlated yeah. with something that's simpler. But what we're actually optimizing for is friction. If you look at from a usability a user experience hat and you put that on, that's what we're looking for is how do you eliminate as much friction as possible? We're, we're on you know 13 hours of media a day as Americans. We're hearing thousands and thousands of messages a day. Every one of those is an opportunity that if you get a little bit of friction in your message, it's an off-ramp to go pay attention to something else. So that's what we're optimizing for in minimal. And you take these all together, and the more you can act upon these five principles, the simpler your message is going to be. Yeah, I love that. And it's interesting because like, I'm just putting it in the context of like my own business. And one of the things I've realized is like we have some complex things we're talking about in the world of podcasting and content marketing. And so I, but I end up trying to, we've, we've, I've narrowed them down to a few like simple messages. So I'm not going to take the time to explain all these now, but I'll just give you a few of them. Like we have one we talk about with audience, which is like buy, borrow, build. And then we'll talk about like, what does buy, borrow, build mean? And then we have something I call the, the three A's, attention, awareness, and authority. And so like, we'll talk about how content marketing leads to attention, awareness, authority. And we'll talk about like the, uh, the three leverage points that come from doing a, a podcast. And, you know, there's time leverage and there's access leverage and there's buyer's journey leverage. And like, those all end up being simple messages. Like the people that can like, they can hang the ideas on in their head. And then, but it belies sort of like the, the complexity of like what you're actually doing. So you have to take the time to sort of explain those things. But even when you have like complex things, you can find like simple frameworks or simple things that you can messaging that can help people just hold on to ideas in their head. And one of the things that like pops into my head when I'm saying that is human beings, one of our unique um, abilities is our ability to be creative and our ability to learn. And that ability to create, be creative and learn is because we can take large, complex thoughts and ideas and we can package them into smaller frameworks. And it's exactly the opposite of like, you know, everyone's talking about AI nowadays. AI is, doesn't have that skill. Mm -hmm. The skill that AI has is something that humans don't have, which is they can hold all the world's information in their head at one time, right? <laughs> they, the technical term for that is irreducibly complex computation. And so we have like that skill set over on like robots have that skill and human beings have this skill of being able to simplify things and be able to package them up that way. And what you're talking and teaching people how to do is like how to systematically be good at that skill because simplification is 
it's a learnable skill. Absolutely. I, I, I love that. That's great. And it's, it's, those things you mentioned are very tangible and they're the kind of things that will stick. Yeah, I hope so. It's working so far for our messaging. <laughs> those are the things I speak about when we get on stage. But yeah, that's, I love that. So that's your driving force to help make things simple. I've got a couple more questions for you here before we finish up. One is your hero's tool belt practical portion of the show here. And you know, just like every hero has their awesome gadgets like batarangs, web slingers, laser eyes, you know, big magical hammer that can fly with. Talk about top one or two tools that you couldn't live without to do what you do. Could be anything, your notepad, your calendar, your marketing tools, something you use to actually deliver what you do. Something you think is essential to getting your job done nowadays, which might be a little interesting now that you're in a portfolio stage of life, but what is you know one of your number one tools for what you're doing now? So to get as tactical as possible, uh, two things that come to mind. One is internal, and if you use it, Notion has been pretty great, actually. I don't feel like I take full advantage of it, but you know, it, I used Evernote for a long time, and it was fine. It was okay. But no, Notion's really nice to be able to kind of put more of those interesting kind of database or multimedia things in, in a way that Evernote never was great for. Um, so that's become kind of my internal like knowledge base for a lot of stuff. And because... You mentioned that I'm doing several different things. For once, if I'm working on the book, if I'm working on teaching or working on a consulting project, I'm able to have all of those things documented in the same place, which makes a big difference. So that's internal. And I'm sure a lot of folks have used that. It's become very popular in the last few years. And the second one is Webflow. And my agency for years and years, we did all sorts of websites for clients, You know, a lot of WordPress stuff and charge a lot of money for them, right? Sometimes it's you know, a little bit of money, but eventually you got to charge a lot of money for websites. You know, you're doing these big complicated projects that have all sorts of moving parts and you know, big brands and a lot of multimedia things, whatever it is. And you would charge, and you know, it would cost a lot of money, take a long time to build those things. Webflow is this interesting middle ground between something like a Squarespace and something like WordPress. It's, if anybody remembers Dreamweaver yeah. or front page as like a nineties kid playing around with these things or two thousands kid, I, I played around with Dreamweaver all the time and it's basically like the modern version of that. So as a designer, I can go in and I can make a website and not have to bug my developer friends to help me out with anything. Eventually if you get to the really com complicated stuff where you have, you know, different kind of APIs and e-commerce things or whatever. Yeah, you kind of want to get off Webflow, but for doing like a blog, doing a like a landing page or something, I have found it to be an incredibly empowering tool, especially if, if you are a designer. Actually, you kind of have to be a designer for it because it's basically a design tool, but yeah. That's one of the things I want to do awesome. is I want to get to the point where I don't need to have both a developer and a designer to get a web page done. I want to be able to just be like, hey, designer person who does really good work, right? I got a couple, uh, one of my designers is phenomenal. Like just the work that you do, just do it directly into the, this is live <laughs> instead of this is designed into something <laughs> like Figma. And then we have to take it out of Figma and put it into something that then is live and, and usable. So, you know, Webflow sounds like it would be a good tool for that. I, we haven't tested it yet though. So we're still going from Figma to like WordPress designs. So, you know, maybe one of these every, days. Oh yeah. Every year I used to go through and test a whole suite of different software just to see if we should change our workflow. And I had Webflow on my on my list and every year I'd go in and try to make a little landing page or something in it. And it got better and better, but it never quite hit the threshold for us to do a real client project in it. But then after I we sold the business and I took, took another look at it because I saw some friend that I knew raving about it, it just hit the critical mass where like everything was good enough and yeah. 
I mean, if you go to my site, go to bengutman.com, it's all built in Webflow. It's been, you know, is it hundred percent perfect? There's probably a few things that you can, that you wish it had, but if your goal is to say you want your designer to own your website, to own your marketing website, especially, that's a tool that lets you do that. Yeah, that's really cool. And then the other one, you mentioned personal knowledge base and you said Notion for that. The one I've been using, I've tested a lot of things. I tested Notion, I tested ClickUp and I've tested Evernote before. I used Apple Notes for a long time. The one that I've fallen in love with recently is Obsidian. If you haven't checked out Obsidian yet, Obsidian- Oh, I've heard of that. Yeah, it, it allows you to just create and then build structure afterwards, which almost everything else, Notion included, mm -hmm. requires structure first, then creation. And it's an interesting sort of, like, it's a different way to work. And because you can connect the structure afterwards, it has freed up a lot of my own ability to write in particular. And I have, I've probably written just in the last six weeks since I started moving my knowledge base stuff into Obsidian, I've probably written 25,000 words or more for oh, wow. newsletters and blogs and other things and, and video scripts. And I'm like, oh, it's, there's something about it that has just, it works for me. Not saying it'll work for you, but it's worth checking out if you are the, the kind of nerd like I am that wants to have a good working oh, knowledge I should check base. That out. <laughs> you know, what's funny is, yeah, I think I may have heard the name for this before. I, I should poke around in it. But when I was writing the book, I remember I was talking to a friend who at some point when he was like, had a book proposal he wanted to do. And it was, and he's like, oh, so how are you writing the book? I'm like, well, I'm writing it in Google Docs. And then I eventually, you know, move it over together. And he's like, what are you talking about? Google Docs, that's crazy. You got to use this platform, that platform. I was like, dude, when you write a book, go talk to me. Okay. Like it's a lot of, it's whatever tool works for you in the moment. A lot of people, when they're starting a big project, get, let the tools get in the way for them instead of just being like creative, the pen and paper, right? Yeah. Like whatever is the easiest for you to write the stuff. And so if that is something like Obsidian, this like notion, excellent. But I always tell people like, don't, it, the tool don't should empower you. Tool. It shouldn't be, yeah. don't this spend much time noodling on that. Exactly the reason why I bring it up for people who are listening is because I spent a lot of time playing with tools and realizing that the tool was getting in my way. And Obsidian is the first time that I worked with a tool that the tool just got out of my way. And I have since pulled in everything I have written in Google Drive and everything that I've written in Apple Notes and everything that I have written in mind map stuff. And they're all in there and I've been, they've been connecting together. And like my favorite thing now is when you go to create a new document, you know, you can click the new document window and it pops up and it's not just a name the document, it's the name the document. And as you're naming the document, it searches through all your other documents um, and it just shrinks the document list. So like, if you're like, hey, I want to write about I don't know, like podcasting, right? Everything that I've ever written that has the title podcasting in it or has a keyword podcasting in it pops up. And so you can see like, oh, I've already written something about this. And so you can pull them all together and you can end up connecting them together. It's cool. It's cool. Um, I'll check it out. Yeah. So one last question for you, and it is your guiding principles, right? One of the things that makes heroes heroic is that they live by a code. For instance, Batman never kills his enemies. He only ever brings them to Arkham Asylum. So as we wrap up this interview, I want to talk about top one, maybe two principles that you live your life by when you first, maybe something you wish you had a, known when you first started out on your own hero's journey? So the first one is don't work with assholes. <laughs> I like that. That applies to people that you work, that work for you, the people that work, uh, you work for, that you work with, uh, that are your clients, because you spend a lot of time with the people that you work with. Yeah. And if they're assholes, you eventually become an asshole too. Uh, and it's not where you want to be. There are plenty of great people out there that you know that are going to be on your wavelength and you want to find them there's plenty of clients if you are dealing with a client that's being a jerk to you fire them you know and it's a really tough decision a lot of times is your payroll and you know and your rent and whatever depends on it 
but you're going to be better off because that one client is taking up all this headspace for maybe the whole team, maybe just the person's working of them. But every time we fired a client that was a jerk and it wasn't a common thing, right? It happens once every couple of years, maybe. Uh, every time you fire a client, it ended up being not just a good psychological decision, but a good business decision because everybody did better work and was more productive after that. So that's number one. And then the second one is more just kind of a, a quote that I love and I'm gonna butcher it a little bit, but it is, a ship is safe in port, but that's not why we build ships. A ship is safe in port, that's not why we build ships. It, it's, there's always a reason not to do something. There's always a reason to stay home. There's always a reason to kind of take the easy route for something to not ask that person out on a date, to not pitch that client. Because rejection sucks, you know, awkwardness is, is awkward. And all these uncomfortable things can happen when you get out there, but you only ever accomplish anything personally, professionally, by getting out there and by doing that stuff. You know, yeah. it's, we're not built to be comfortable. You know, you wanna go do uncomfortable things. And, you know, yes, you should, you know, be aware of your own energy and your own health and your well-being and the people that rely on you. All those things are important. But at a certain point, you have to seek out a few things that are not going to be the easy route in order to do interesting stuff. Yeah, absolutely. I love that. One of the uh, quotes that we have, um, my wife and I painted onto our bathroom wall, says, uh, um, one cannot cross the sea simply by standing by the ocean. You know, <laughs> similar kind of, kind of message. And um, I remember one of the most important lessons my dad taught me when I was young was you don't wait until you're ready to do something because there's no such thing as being ready, right? The act of doing something is what makes you ready. And so if you want to accomplish something, you have to try, you have to take the risks, you have to, you know, jump off the cliff and build a parachute on the way down, right? Like that's, you know, the message I try to leave most, especially young entrepreneurs with is, you know, learn to be a parachute builder and actually go out and, and do something because the reality is most people don't do anything because they're waiting for the stars to align. They're waiting for something to happen. And mm -hmm. the reality is you have to go out and make the stars align yourself, right? You have to go and do the thing, like make something happen. So I, I love that. 100%. Awesome. Well, I think that is a great place to wrap our interview. So I, I do finish every interview with Simple Challenge. I call it the Heroes Challenge. And I do this to help get access to stories I might not otherwise find on my own. So the question is simple. Do you have someone in your life or in your network that you think has a cool entrepreneurial story? Who are they? first names are fine. And why do you think they should come share their story here on the hero show? First person that comes to mind for you. I, I have a couple of folks that uh, I've known either they've worked for them when I was younger, or they were a client or somebody I worked with that have always impressed me because they are in businesses that they had no intention of being in at some point, And they're really good at them. And both of these, both of these, uh, there's three people that I have in mind and every single one of them basically saw an opportunity they followed it with gusto and they ended up building like a pr agency that focused on something that they had no interest in doing before they built this like a business in the medical space that they had no idea what they were doing but they saw an opportunity and they went after it vigorously or this other person i know who runs an it firm but doesn't know anything about it nice. because he doesn't want to get in the weeds of having to do it and so anybody that comes to a space was able to look at it analytically, look at it with the eye for opportunity. I've always been impressed by that level of business acumen. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I don't know what happened to my phone. My video just died, but that's all right. <laughs> I love that. What we'll do is we'll see about getting those, you know, getting an introduction afterwards. And sometimes we get a good conversations from those. They don't always say yes, but when they do, they always turn out pretty well. So last little thing here in comic books, there's always the crowd of people who 
say there, you know, at the end who are cheering and clapping for their acts of heroism. So as we close, what we want to know is where can people find you, right? Where can they light up the bat signal, so to speak? And more importantly, who are the best types of people to reach out and to, you know, maybe pick up your book or buy your products? So I am excited to have this book that comes out again, simply put, Why Clear Messages Win and How to Design Them. It's got this beautiful gold cover on it. You, It comes out October 10th, 2023. By the time you're listening to this, we'll probably be available wherever books are sold. Get it on Amazon, Barnes & Noble. Go check me out, bengutman.com, B-E-N-G-U-T-M-A-N-N. I have to spell it because there's two T's and there's two N's. Everybody always forgets that. Or hit me up on LinkedIn. I'm excited to share a newsletter every week on Tuesday that goes out. I'm excited to share stuff from the book all the time. And if there's anything I can do to help somebody, you know, please never hesitate to reach out. Awesome. Well, we will uh, see about getting the links to the website there in the description for the show. And right there in the copy of that book, I'll probably pick it up as soon as it's available because, you know, simple method for it to get like, my life. So love that. And thank you so much for coming on the show for it again. Ben, I really appreciate getting to hear your story and hear your perspective and hear today's successes. So you have any uh, final words of wisdom before I hit this uh, stop record button and we, uh, we finish this off? Oh, I mean, thank you so much for having me, Richard. This has been a blast to talk to you and, you know, Gee. forward to catching up again soon. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of The Hero Show, where we work to shift the cultural narrative around entrepreneurship and celebrate the heropreneurs who make our world a better place. Don't forget to visit our website at theheroshow.tv, where you can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Spotify, or via RSS, so you'll never miss an episode. If you found value in our show, we'd truly appreciate a rating on iTunes, or better yet, Share it with a friend to help us spread the message of entrepreneurship as a force for good. Curious to learn more about the stories and insights of these incredible heropreneurs? Check out our in-depth interviews and resources on our website. Together, let's support and inspire the next generation of entrepreneurs as they embark on their own heroic journeys. Join us again next week for another episode of The Hero Show where we'll continue to explore the world of heropreneurs, their superpowers, and the positive impact they bring to our lives. Until then, stay heroic.